there's a huge um, variety or variability of acceptance. The challenge was, you know, learning, I think relearning how to love people well through that. And so how to serve people even when they're mad at you. Katina, these have been some tough months. I'm, I'm curious for your members, what has kept them going and gotten them through these many months of, of being there in, in environments where they couldn't even be certain of their own safety? The truth, they want to make sure they can continue to provide a, a living for their families. And as we began looking at the models on how this would impact the United States and in particular St. Louis, I think it was we were um, we were very concerned about what was going to happen. But it's that a great deal of uncertainty that makes it really hard to sort of grasp the situation. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. One year ago tomorrow, that Governor Mike Parson declared a state of emergency in Missouri. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker followed suit a week later. COVID-19 had come to the Midwest. And so this month is a string of anniversaries that some of us might rather forget. When schools shut down, when work meetings moved to Zoom, when restaurants closed and we were told we couldn't even hug grandma anymore. Some people had no choice but to soldier on. Grocery store workers kept stocking shelves. Bus drivers kept picking up passengers. Medical workers were busy than ever. But for others, it's been a period of quiet, of working from home, of seeing people only on computer screens. In just a bit, we'll open the phone lines and we want to hear from you. What have you grieved during this strange and often stressful year? What's given you joy in these uncharted pathways? What's gotten you through? First, though, let's take stock of where we are today, and who better to do that than Dr. Alex Garza. He's the chief community health officer for SSM and, of course, the commander of our St. Louis Metropolitan Pandemic Task Force, and he joins us today. Dr. Garza, welcome back. Well, thank you, Sarah. Good afternoon. How are you? So one year ago, did you have any sense of of what was about to hit us? Uh, You know... That's a difficult question to answer thinking back to a year ago. So I think what we had um, was this feeling of the unknown. So Mm -hmm. we saw what was happening overseas. We saw what was happening in Europe. And uh, as we began looking at the models on how this would impact the United States and in particular St. Louis, I think it was we um, we were very concerned about what was going to happen. But it's that a great deal of uncertainty that makes it really hard to sort of grasp mm-hmm. the situation. Um, I think, as you know, Sarah, I'm in the military, and this is what we call the fog of war. <laughs> um, so we didn't really know what was going to be happening, but we were very, very concerned. So we've now had 4,700 deaths in the metro area, 8,700 mm-hmm. in the state of Missouri. I know it's mm-hmm. hard to go back to that state of mind we had last year, but is that better in some ways than you might have anticipated as, as we stood on the brink last March? 
Well, I think so. It, it's always hard to, um, you know, go back and, and reverse engineer what should have happened or could have happened. Um, but in comparison, at least to the modeling that we did, it, it was it was much better. Mm-hmm. And and I think um, in the in the metro area that uh, we were able to learn fast. And when I say we, it's the collective we, you sure. know, the healthcare systems and the public officials and things like that. And we're able to think fast and move fast um, when it came to countering whatever the the virus was throwing at us. So. Um, so I do want to commend, you know, everybody in the task force, including the, you know, public health officials, the healthcare systems, and the elected officials for for taking the appropriate steps on what could have been much worse. Yeah, I mean, when you look at that modeling and what would have been the worst case scenario, do you think that's uh, largely that we were able to treat it so much more effectively than some of these worst case scenarios that were happening overseas? Um, or do the public health restrictions that went into place do those also play a big role in that to you? Oh, oh, without a doubt. Uh, the public health restrictions paid, played the major role. Hmm. Uh, by and large, the, the treatment for COVID-19 has, you know, a, a moderate to minimal impact, especially thinking back in those early days where we were not sure how to even treat this disease. Mm-hmm. I mean, you remember back to the days of hydroxychloroquine and and we put people on ventilators very early and both of those turned out to be not very helpful treatments. And so, when you look at the case numbers and the hospitalization numbers and everything else, it's absolutely those public health measures that had the biggest impact on on spread in cases and hospitalizations and so on. Hmm. I know some people have been very angry at their fellow Missourians and fellow Illinoisans um, for not always going as far as they were asked to go and, and being resistant to some of those things. Hmm. But it almost seems remarkable looking back over a year that people sustained so many parts of this or adopted new things that maybe last March would have seemed utterly, utterly impossible to ask people to do. Yeah, uh, it created a new environment. Um, you know, there's there's a couple of principles. One is called the mere exposure principle, where once you expose somebody to something such as, you know, wearing a mask or social distancing, and over time it becomes more acceptable. And so I, I think that's really what happened in the pandemic as well is, once people understood, you know, the science behind it and and how it was preventing spread, that it became much more acceptable. And then when they saw their neighbors and their colleagues and and uh, other people in their community accepting this, then it became much more easy to accept it as well. But but you know, granted, there there's a huge um, variety or variability of acceptance uh, throughout mm-hmm. the population. So you have to deal with that as well. So case counts have been dropping. Um, SSM Health, St. Louis University Hospital, they announced on Wednesday that they no longer had any patients on Mm -hmm. ventilators. That seems like such a huge news. Is it time to pop the champagne? This pandemic is over. Uh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> so, <Alas>. so we're <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We can, you know, I think we can start getting it out of maybe the box. Uh, not quite putting it in the cooler yet, but uh, certainly not time to pop the champagne. So, so yeah, no, that that was a significant event with um, no patients on ventilators at St. Louis University Hospital. And the reason why I say that that there was a point in time when we were in the peak of our hospitalizations, that they were taking care of significant numbers of people on ventilators in the hospital. I think they were probably our, our largest population within our healthcare system, within the SSM system. And so to go from that now to zero is um, it's just it's phenomenal. Um, and, it, and it's also hopeful. Uh, I think it 
it was uh, it, it really in, inspires a lot of people and gives them hope uh, that we are getting towards the tail end of this pandemic. But you do seem pretty certain that this is not over yet. What's your biggest worry going forward? Yeah, so the biggest worries are, you know, we are making very good progress. And so I don't want to minimize that. Um, but the challenges still remain. We still have a large number of people that need to be vaccinated, including a large number of our vulnerable population. And so by that, I mean people that are over 65 and people with chronic medical conditions. And so we have to be able to protect them first. Um, and then the, the second piece is is the variants that are circulating out there. Now, we don't know how much they've contributed to the case counts right now. We know it's not zero, mm -hmm. uh, but, we, but we don't know how much. And so... Um, the danger is is uh, people becoming complacent um, while we still have a large number of unvaccinated, vulnerable people that could drive the numbers uh, right back up. So, so that is the concern. So these vaccines, um, I, I believe it was December that we got the good news. There were vaccines that worked mm -hmm. and they were going to be approved. And here we are in mid-March. Has it been frustrating to see yeah. that we still have people in the most vulnerable groups in those first tiers who don't even have yeah. good access? It's not just people turning it down because they're leery. It's people right. in St. Louis don't have a clear path to get it. Yeah, no, it is it is frustrating, um, and you know, and we understand early on there's not going to be, you know, a unlimited supply of vaccine, um, but uh, at at this point in time, I think we we should expect uh, more um, vaccine for especially for our vulnerable populations, particularly in the urban areas where there's high population density. We know there's a larger vulnerable population here. And, uh, you know, uh, seeing people having to travel hundreds of miles for a vaccine is just, um, uh, it's disappointing. I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. But this vaccine, um, on one hand, way too hard to get in the St. Louis area. On the other hand, it's so remarkable that so many different ones have been developed that are great options mm -hmm. and they're now all coming on the market. Does this feel like a real triumph for your profession, for science, that here we are? Yeah, it, it really does. Um, and part of the reason is just as you mentioned, three different vaccines for what was a novel virus uh, from a year ago. Um, and that in and of itself, so take everything else away, you know, the political drama and everything else, just the, the scientific fact that uh, we were able, and I say we against collective we, I didn't have any part in it, but mm -hmm. but uh, that that we were able to develop an effective vaccine in that short amount of time using really novel techniques, the mRNA technique, is it's really just a, a gigantic leap in science and in de vaccine development. So there's also been some talk that the pandemic task force itself heralds something new for the St. Louis area, that this shows mm -hmm. that people can work together regionally. Do you think there's going to be some good that comes out of that? Well, I certainly hope so. And that is our plan. Uh, you're absolutely right that we saw what we can do when we all come together to focus on a problem. Uh, the healthcare systems, I can tell you, have have really come together and, and become um, much more, I think, uh, cohesive in how we address uh, health strategies and things like that. Now we're always going to be competing uh, for, for other things, but we also recognize that if we are going to improve as a community, that we have to act together as one. And there are some things where we don't compete, where we have to all work together uh, for, a common, for a common cause. Well, Dr. Alex Garza, I want to thank you for all the work you've done in this past year. Um, and also thank you for joining us today. 
Sure, absolutely. And, and thank you as well, Sarah, and, and all the reporters out there that have done a, just a remarkable job in delivering the news about the virus and I think helping to educate the public. It's been very, very helpful. Well, I hope when all this is over, we can have you back um, and we can actually pop that champagne. <laughs> absolutely. Looking forward to it. We need to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue this conversation looking at one year of this pandemic. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. to our conversation. We're talking about one year of living with COVID-19 in our midst. And for every person who's been able to hunker down and work remotely, there's another who has gone to work day in, day out. That includes grocery workers, as David Cook, president of UFCW Local 655, reminded us on this show just last month. They're seeing a thousand different people every day. How many people do you know in your life that mind seeing a thousand people a day. Nobody does that except for grocery retail workers. The stress is still there, especially mm-hmm. when you have the general public, some of them, um, that refuse to mask up, that refuse to take the proper precautions. Um, and, and my members are expected to wait on them like anybody else. And that is David Cook, president of UFCW Local 655. And when we talk about those essential workers who have to keep going, whether people are masked or not, in their face or not, that workforce also includes bus drivers. And here today to discuss what the last year has been like is Katina Wilson. She's the vice president of Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 788. Katina, welcome back. Hello, how are you? And we're also joined today by St. Louis Public Radio health reporter Sarah Fenton. Sarah, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Katina, I want to start with you. Um, this past year, it's it's been a tough year. Did your members feel in some ways like they were putting their lives on the line just to do their jobs? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, our members are facing everything, just the fear of, um, with this pandemic, coming into contact with so many people. And then, you know, in the beginning, it was the contract tax tracing and we know we all know how that went so absolutely we're dealing with so many issues behind the pandemic katina i understand that three members of your union um, did die from covid19 what was it like to grapple with that as as co-workers of those of those people It, it it was extremely stressful but what i will say is that um when we lost the members the company you know well metro did they they put counselors on site and tried to do some some things to to help us to work through it. Yeah, it it, it just doesn't change it. It's it, it got extremely scary for our members. So of course we've lost a lot of members to the to the industry right now, and just a scary time for essential workers. Sarah Fenton, there was a lot of talk about this virus being a great equalizer between rich people and poor people. Is it fair to say that just didn't really happen? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because, you know, there are different kinds of jobs and lower paying jobs are often the ones that put people more at risk. Like, you know, being a retail worker, someone, you know, working, um, you know, maybe like a lower paid hospital position, reception, that kind of thing. 
And so when you look at people who don't have the luxury to work a white collar job from home, you're looking at people who are necessarily going to be more at risk of getting sick and don't necessarily have the protections that can get them healthy again, like health insurance um, or sick leave benefits of that kind. And so it was I I remember there was a lot of that that language at this, you know, like, oh, it's going to lay bare everything and we're going to be all all the same. And like, no, absolutely not. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. There was a lot of concern at the beginning, and rightly so after what had happened in Wuhan, that physicians um, were all putting their lives on the line. And and yes, there have been some some horror stories of physicians who did die from this in this country. But it seems like it's actually things like bus drivers and and meatpacking workers who took the brunt of this. Is, Is that somewhat surprising looking at this now a year on, Sarah? I don't think so. Um, and I I mean, I, I don't want to minimize what healthcare workers have gone through because mm-hmm. there are, like I said, like different kind of strata of healthcare workers, especially if you look at, you know, smaller independent clinics that have had a hard time getting protective equipment, PPE. Um, but when you look at healthcare workers that work at, you know, for example, a big hospital like Barnes or SSM, they have the ability to protect their workers in a way that smaller employers that don't necessarily work in healthcare don't. Like mm-hmm. when I, I'm thinking in terms of masks, in terms of N95, that was a big story that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic was that people were like, I have to go to work and I don't feel safe and I don't have proper masks, especially when we we didn't really know exactly how the virus virus was spreading back then. Mm-hmm. And that was a big that was a big concern. And so they don't necessarily have the institutional means of getting that kind of equipment. They don't have the institutional stature to tell people, you know, like, oh, I'm a doctor. You have to do what I say. Mm-hmm. Um, there are just a lot of a lot of complications that make being, um, you know, an essential worker very scary and very disheartening right now, I think. We got an email from Brian. He writes, it infuriates me to hear people talk about how challenging it has been to work from the comfort and safety of their own homes. I would love to hear more from the perspective of essential workers who are out risking their lives for low wages in order to ensure that your homes are stocked with groceries, bug-free, and in good condition. Our country paid lip service to essential workers for a couple of months at the beginning of the pandemic, but it quickly became clear that what was really meant by essential is expendable. We don't want your thanks, your commercials, or your yard signs. We want to earn wages that reflect the risk we have been forced to take on. Katina Wilson, is that something that that your members have been feeling? Absolutely. Absolutely. We are, you know, we have members out here that are making sure that the task is met, the essential, the job that the, the the duties that we have to fulfill as far as getting low-income families to and from um, medical facilities. Our Colorado operators were, they were actually taking people to be tested. So Hmm. we never think that, you know, we know that they get the short end of the stick. Um, We've been fighting through contracts, which we just closed it, to get them earned sick time. Um, Company fought on that. And right now, to me, ideal time to look at 
the safety of those workers who have been out here through the whole pandemic and how you structure their work. So absolutely they feel like that. They never they, they always kind of feel like they get the short end of the stick when we have our higher level management at home working from home. Katina, have drivers been able to get vaccinated? Absolutely. Now, that is one thing that I can say, and I, I, I give credit where credit is due. With Metro, as far as the PPE and the vaccines, if if we've asked for it for our members, they produce those, you know, hmm. those things, those, those industry standards as far as the hand sanitizer, the masks, where we feel like the shortcomings are coming in at ESD, things that they can change. Also, within the industry, as far as the run structure, limiting exposure uh, to the members as as we're opening back up, those kind of things. What they did do when the pandemic started was Metro reduced the runs to make sure that our members were safe because the union requested these things, and they worked with, worked with us on that. But as they're opening it back up, we don't want people to get, you know, because we're kind of getting careless with it. Mm-hmm. We don't feel like they took the necessary precautions so that we can keep these numbers down based on their manpower and the demographic of their manpower and our customer base. We know we're in a medically deprived community as well as um, income deprived community. So those things are still essential for us to keep the community safe because a bus driver is a person that can touch a number, you know, hundreds of people through through the day. That's so a great we just point. We want to make sure that we're keeping uh, the community safe because we're out here in this together. So it's not just, okay, the bus driver has to be safe. We have to make sure that that bus driver is is COVID-free and has everything they need because if you could get a, a operator with COVID in the general public riding, just think of how many people that can impact. Sarah, it seems like a lot of us are starting to feel like the end is here, the end is here. And I think hearing Katina talk, um, it's important not to take our eye off the ball here. Right. And I think that's sort of the um, the paradox of public health um, is when it works, people say, look, nothing's happening. <laughs> and then we don't need to do the things anymore. And I think one of the reasons why we're seeing such good um such good results right now is, you know, people are getting vaccinated. They're still wearing masks. And um, I know that was something that Dr. Garza talked about at the top of the of the show that, you know, it's when things get a little better, it's easy to say, oh, it's over. And uh, that's not necessarily the case. I think um, what President Biden has said is like, you know, 100 more days, get through 100 more days. But I do think that uh, things are getting better. And I think that there seems to be more of a concrete end in sight than there has been in the past year. Hmm. Katina, these have been some tough months. I'm, I'm curious for your members, what has kept them going and gotten them through these many months of, of being there in, in environments where they couldn't even be certain of their own safety? The truth, they want to make sure they can continue to provide a a living for their families. Mm -hmm. They want to make sure that their families are okay because we're not blind to this. We know what the unemployment rate is. And what we're saying is we'll meet the task. We just want the support, and I think that's for any essential worker. We just want the support of the, the, the companies that we work for to make sure that they're doing everything reasonable to keep us safe while we go out here and meet the task. Well. that that makes sense. You're doing it because you kind of have to do it. But that that motivator mm-hmm. works, right? Mm-hmm. 
Well, Katina Wilson, Vice President of Amalgamated Transit Union Local 788, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for always having us. And St. Louis Public Radio health reporter Sarah Fenton, thank you. Anytime. Leading up to this show, we asked you for your reflections 12 months into this pandemic. We asked, what did you find yourself grieving and what brought you joy or solace? Some of you responded to that, and here's what you said. This is Vicki, and I live in Moscow Mills, Missouri. And one of the happy things that happened to me during the COVID is I was able to join my sister, who lives in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, her book club. I was unable to find one locally, at least near my home, so I'm very happy about that. My name is Kim. I'm a hospice nurse in St. Louis, and I mourn the fact that we can't hug our patients and, uh, and their families. It used to be such a nice way to non-verbally give support during a visit or at, at the end of the visit. When you saw somebody was struggling and they, you know, needed that human connection, we instinctively hugged. And not being able to, it's been a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. My name is Gerald Kleba, and I'm calling from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, I have been writing essays. Now I've written 300 one-page essays almost daily during this pandemic time, uh, many of them are reflections on my 54 years of being a parish priest, and others are reflections on more current affairs, but usually with a theological perspective. Hi, my name is Lauren. I'm from St. Louis County, and the thing that has brought me the most joy recently has been getting the COVID vaccine just knowing that I'm doing my part to help get us back to some type of normalcy has really made me over the moon. I'm a healthcare worker, and seeing the negative results of COVID has been really hard. And our thanks to Lauren in St. Louis County, along with Vicki in Moscow Mills, and Kim and Gerald in St. Louis for sharing their thoughts a year into this crisis. And we also want to hear from you. Our phone lines are now open. Call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can also send us a tweet at STL on air and share your reflections on this past year. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. Roy and Emily Hubbard are a married couple with four kids in South St. Louis, and they each agreed to share their reflections on this past year. Emily said she's a homebody, so in many ways, all that time together as a family has been peaceful. But she said some things were hard. I really miss our school, and I, um, you know, I knew that I loved it, but having to be forced to be away from it really made me think about how how much that daily connection of dropping our kids off and picking them up and getting to see the teachers in the schoolyard, it just sort of grounded me and connected us to our community. And without that, I um, 
I just, I missed it. I definitely felt a significant loss from not being a part of the school every day. Uh, my name is Roy Hubbard. I'm the pastor of New City Fellowship in South City. So, I mean, it's been a long year, to say the least. Um, I know, I can remember, I guess around this time last year, the announcement of everything being shut down and um, none of us had a clue what that meant or had categories for that. Um, and it's like, what? Shut down? We can't go to school? We can't go to work? We can't eat out in public? What's what's that even mean? Um, but I remember, strangely, uh, during that time of having um, a sense of like just great peace and confidence in terms of like, all right, this is terrible. I really want to see how God is going to bring us out of this. And so there was a, a sense from the beginning for me that it was like, all right, let's see what God does. And so um, I wish I could say I had that perspective the entire throughout the entire year, but I do remember at the very beginning just thinking, oh, this will be two weeks. This will be four weeks. This will be a month at the most. This will all blow over. And um, And for all of us, you know, we were just – caught off guard in terms of like how this would change our lives forever. And so, um, you know, you have the isolation, you have, um, separation from, um, family and friends and, um, people that you love and you see every day. And on top of that, you know, like it would be good. It would have been good if, you know, the pandemic was the only thing we had to deal with. You know, we had, um, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and, um, we had presidential elections and political discourse and the challenge was, you know, learning, I think relearning how to love people well through that. And so how to serve people, even when they're mad at you, even when they're like, you should be opening the church. We don't really care about this virus. Um, you know, when people are kind of, you know, just upset about political discourse or, you know, just grieving like, um, injustice in our land um and so all those things were kind of compounded and it was just like all right how do i like love people well in this time and you know how do i encourage god's people to love well and that is local pastor Roy Hubbard, as well as his wife, Emily Hubbard. And joining me now is Dr. Jessie Gold. She's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Washington University. Dr. Gold, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Always good to be here. So as, as Pastor Hubbard said there, it's been a tough year even beyond the pandemic for a lot of people. Are some of the people that you work with hitting the wall right now? Absolutely. I mean, hearing all of those things that people were saying just really resonated with me. It's been a really tough year mentally for everyone. It's a lot of compounding factors, a lot of compounding traumas. And I mean, mentally, it's not been great for people before the pandemic. So you throw on all of that on top of it, it's not going to be easy at all. So what advice do you give uh, to people who are really struggling with that that burnout, that pandemic fatigue right now? You know, I mean, I heard some people say that they were finding little ways to find gratitude and find hope. And I think that's really important. I think there are definitely things that are coming around the corner that are ways to find hope. I mean, the vaccine's definitely one of them. But I do think that I try to tell people to do their best to live day by day. I mean, I think the 
um, you know, recovery communities, chronic disease communities have done their best doing that for a really long time. I think we can still do that. I think we can find gratitude in little things that happen. I think we can find social support in new ways now. It's nicer outside. Mm -hmm. There are ways that we can still socially distant, hang out with each other. I think that when we do get the vaccine, there will be more ways that we can be able to see more people and that will be nice. I think planning social activities that are still socially distant or you know, over the computer in what ways you can are still quite nice. There are definitely ways that you can still find joy. I'm going to go to the phone lines here in a moment, but I do want to let you know our phone lines are open and we're curious to hear what you've missed, what you've mourned, and also what's kept you going. Because if you're listening to the show, you're still here and, and we're happy about that. So you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Uh, let's go to John, who's calling from Ferguson. Um, John, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi. Thank you for joining us. I understand you're a mailman. Is that right? Yes, I am. Well, well, thank you for that work you do. How has the past year been for you? Oh, it's, you know, my life really hasn't drastically changed. But, I mean, it was just it was like Christmas time. My customers, some of the stuff they said to me, it brought tears to my eyes. Just remember how kind they were. Do you think people have, have a new appreciation for people like postal workers? Yes. Yes, I do. It's like, uh, you know, it's, it's my wife had told me one time that I, the postal worker is like the only person some people see on a daily basis hmm. and that you should be kind to them and uh, appreciative. And my people have been great. And so people really stepped up. They, they gave you some items of appreciation at Christmas, it sounds like. Yes. I mean, some of the, the, how the, 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 comments they wrote in the cards they gave me were just uh were just great mm-hmm. well john I'm i wish s- i had one on me right now to tell you <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I would don't. love to hear that i think that would make all of us smile but it's great to hear that that people have come through with that appreciation thank you for sharing that uh dr gold that's nice to hear that that people have this new appreciation for the postman Yeah, I mean, I think we probably have a new appreciation for people in general. I mean, I think we took for granted how much we interacted with people day to day. You know, we had work, but there were all these little interactions with people that we didn't even realize we had. I think we were probably really cooped up and looking at our phones in a lot of ways in conversation. We didn't even realize we're behind our computers and we're probably sick of our computers by now. And having like the postman and being able to see somebody day to day when we were like socially distant and completely isolated was probably fantastic and we have this appreciation for how they keep going to work when maybe we don't have to and that's great and I'm really glad that people have been so nice and so appreciative and I I certainly am. We heard from John there, who is an essential worker. We need that mail. Um, I want to share the perspective of another essential worker in our community. Uh, Tim O'Leary is 52 years old. He was born with Prader-Willie syndrome. He's an assembly worker at Lafayette Industries and a longtime resident at Promise Community Homes in Crestwood. He has kept working throughout this pandemic, but he told us he missed going to church, volunteering at Cardinals games, and working out at the gym. Now, last week, our producer Evie Hemphill spoke with Tim and his mother, Judy and Tim shared some good news with Evie. Well, I just got my COVID first COVID shot. That's huge. When when did you get that? Last week, my, my mom took me to get it. And Tim said that soon he'll be able to see his fiance again. This is after a year of being separated. When do you think you'll get to see her again? Well, she 
The 25th. 25th. They're both oh, getting their shots. The 25th? No, the 24th. 24th. Oh, 24th. she knows what state. <gasps> they both have their second state. You both get this. Second shot, COVID shot. And then you Aww. can get together. Yeah. Yeah. He's looking so forward. So do you have a plan yet? Do you know where you're going to meet and what that's going to be like to me? I'm um, probably go to her house, I guess. Start going, start going to people's first meeting, too. Now, Tim's mom explained that People First is a nonprofit that Tim is involved with. Timmy's on a board. It's called uh, People's First, and it's a self-advocacy organization that's just run by people with developmental disabilities. Yes. And him and his fiance are on this. Yes. And so they've been able to continue that on Zoom once a month, haven't you? Yes. I've forgotten about yes. that. Yes. So that's why he's used, he's more used to the Zoom than I am. And that is Tim O'Leary and his mother, who spoke with our producer last week. Uh, Dr. Gold, hearing about Tim's world kind of opening up again after this year of being closed, not even being able to see his own fiance due to their risk levels, um, that brings almost a tear to my eye, just thinking about that situation for him. Yeah, I mean, I was smiling listening to the story. Those are the kind of things that get me through the day when my patients start talking like that. I mean, it's really great to hear like the vaccine has so much promise for people. This year's been so hard. And, you know, as a psychiatrist sitting with people and feeling like I couldn't give a lot of hope to people and feeling like a lot of the stories, I'm just sitting there holding people's emotions and holding people's pain and really not having a solution and really sort of just being like, all right, I mean, I, I hope this ends at some point and that I have the way to be able to help people, but the vaccine is this like really hopeful thing on the horizon where people's mental health will really improve because they can see people again. And we're social creatures. I mean, we're human, right? And I think you can hear that, like the hope, the excitement, the enthusiasm of being able to even just see one person again. I mean, it's really important to people to see other people. And it's, it's really great. We heard earlier on the show from a hospice worker who, who left us a voicemail and shared just how hard it was not being able to give a hug to the people that she ministered to through her job. Um, I've never myself been a hugger, but I feel like I have a new appreciation for hugs. Yeah, I'm definitely a hugger. So I, I miss that for sure. And I mean, I'm a, I am see healthcare workers in my job. And I think the job of a healthcare worker has really changed with all of the protective equipment. So I think people took for granted sort of even just the job of going into a room and not having to be covered in a gown and a mask and all of that. And, and we really do a lot of our work by just even not even touching, but just sort of emotional reactions with people and empathizing with facial expressions and empathizing with, you know, even just touching someone with your hand or for me, like giving someone a box of tissues and I can't do that over a screen, you know, and I think not having that or having the full protective gown in the way really limits like how we feel we can connect to people and, and, and human connection is so important, especially with grief, especially with healing. And I think being able to get back to that, especially as a hospice worker, I can imagine not having that is so like detrimental to what she feels like she can do in her job and having to be able to get back to that will be really helpful. I've also heard people talking about with masks and, and of course, like we need to keep wearing them. This is not to say that at all, but that it can be hard to to read people's facial expressions. And there's some difficulty, I think, that, that some people really feel with that, that they are just longing to see the bottom half of people's faces again. Do you, do you identify <laughs> with that? 
Oh, I mean, absolutely. As someone who, you know, specializes basically in reading people's faces and emotions, it's quite hard if people are basically only their eyes. You can see a little bit from their eyes, but it would be quite nice to see the rest. And I know people who are lip readers because they're hard of hearing and things like that. It's been quite difficult for people's whole entire mouths to be blocked off. So when we can get back to not doing that, it'll be nice. Of course, masks are super important until we understand like how transmission works and things like that. But I think when we get back to the place where we don't have to do that all the time or we'll be able to have a little bit lax on those restrictions it'll be quite nice for people to be able to see people smile again so dr gold you mentioned that you work with a lot of healthcare workers i understand the second population that your practice tends to pull from is college students and frankly it's been eye-opening to hear about just how college has been different during this pandemic i don't think we all fully appreciate some of the sacrifices these kids have made from the quote-unquote normal college experience how are the kids doing these days? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't want to be a college freshman at all. I mean, th- those kids basically had, you know, their high school year was their senior year of high school was the beginning of the pandemic. Their freshman year is this, this year, right? So they didn't have a normal, like, senior year of high school, no senior graduation and all of that. And then orientation and all of that is completely different, too. So, I mean, this year and all of those transitions and all of the things that they thought were going to be typical and normal, it's just completely different. So a lot of people, I mean, at WashU, they've been doing a hybrid model where some of their classes are in person and some of their classes are online. But it's so different. I mean, one of my students said something like the thing I miss most about college is the part where you just sort of walk down the street or walk down the, you know, like sidewalk and get to bump into people. And those might not be my best friends, but they're people I miss seeing because like that was the part of college, the community part where maybe I do have friends and I do have the people I see day to day in my, you know, tiny bit of people that I live with or the people that are my closest friends. But I miss seeing those other people or the part that makes college great. And I think they really have changed their community entirely. And they really are just, you know, doing a lot of their work from home and open book and things like that. And it's just not what college was for them. A lot of people have, you know, given up the experience of going abroad and maybe that's something that they wanted to do their whole life and maybe they're not getting to do like that internship they've always wanted so you know people plan so far in advance when they're college kids like they're these like type a kids who could tell you what they're going to do their entire four years when they're freshmen so i think it's really hard to change every little bit as as we go and as this evolves and how and especially not knowing when it's going to end like when will we get to go back to a path where I can, you know, do myself again. I have a patient who literally was just like, I, I'm just in stall. And when this ends, I'd like to go back to where I can just be happy and do mm. myself again. And I, I'm fine. I'm not depressed. I'm not sad. But I look at all my friends and we're sort of all like that. We're just kind of on pause until you tell me I can press play. That is so sad to me. I mean, I get it. I I totally get it. But the idea of not being able to feel fully happy during that pause period, do do you have advice that can take them out of the pause and into happiness? Or is this a matter of it it just is going to take time? We have to wait. I mean, I think part of it's time. I've told them to try to find ways to mix it up as much as possible and try to find ways that feel new and feel different because I think we all have that a bit, you know, the Groundhog Day feeling where we're like, we've been doing this for so long. Like, is it Monday? Is it Friday? Is it Tuesday? I have no idea what day of the week it is. And I'm still in PJ pants, even though I'm really working from home and I should be dressed. Like, I don't know where I am. And so, you know, I think I've been telling them, like, is there a skill you can pick up? Is there like a book you can read? Is there a podcast that you wish you were doing is there something you can add that feels different that would be fun 
that at least you could throw something new in your day that maybe doesn't feel the same. And so we've been trying that as it's been new and like nicer outside, like can you incorporate going outside and walking and exercising or something into your day? And like structure obviously is super important too. So like, you know, for people who work from home and same with college kids who are doing school from home, like can you have more structure in your day so your days aren't all blending into each other? Can you have times where you study and times where you hang out with people? Can you still wake up at the same time and go to sleep at the same time and eat at the same time so you're just not like, why am I here and is this over yet? You know, because mm-hmm. it's just, otherwise it just sort of all blends and you just feel kind of miserable, even though you're okay, but like your brain's like, I've been in sweatpants for three months. When you're in sweatpants for three months, you're supposed to be depressed, right? You know? Yeah, I mean, they go hand in hand, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Time to put on those good pants and, and pretend for a moment. Yeah, like take a shower, eat something, you know, do something that's sort of plan something. I think a lot of college kids are pretty used to stumbling on their friends too. Like they're big Mm. texters, big texters, not big like phone call people, not big like video chat people. They're like, you know, texting's enough and it's really not enough for a year, you know. My guest today is Dr. Jessie Gold. She's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Washington University. We're talking about these very strange 12 months that we have now lived through and and that we continue to live through. This pandemic is not over yet. But we've been talking a lot about what's hard. And in these final minutes we have here, I want to talk a little bit about some of the silver linings. Um, We heard from Katerina who writes, I like that life slowed down for at least a bit. And I enjoyed not spending two hours in the car commuting during the weeks I could work from home. Also, I enjoyed not having peer pressure to do structured activities with my child. It was nice just to walk around the park. Dr. Gold, for me, I feel like parks were the sanity saver, having a place to stretch my legs and get that fresh air. You mentioned the idea of going outside. Is that something that's been the case for you as well? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I've had a lot of time to focus on like myself and coping skills and what actually works that doesn't mean I've done everything well and that doesn't mean everything's worked I'm a big like honest authentic person so I will tell you lots of stuff failed and lots of stuff continues to fail but I think it's a you know when you get a lot of time and you get a lot of time by yourself and you get a lot of time to try things you figure out like you know I tried journaling for a bit that didn't work or I tried mindfulness for a bit and that did work or I tried yoga and that did or didn't work you know you have a lot of time on to spend on yourself or to spend on your family and friends and I think that's great without having to travel so much or without having to do all these conferences for work where you actually have to go there and be there and give a talk and be there and leave you know all these things are now on zoom so it does save a bit of all the hullabaloo of going and I think that's been a little bit nice too so I mean I think getting to focus on yourself is definitely a plus of the whole thing for me and a lot of patients too have said that to me and all that time you've had to focus on yourself do you feel like you've learned new things about yourself that are going to help you going forward well that's a good question I mean I I mean, I think so. I mean, I'm a big therapy person too. So I I, I, I'm, I, joke with my therapist that she's been like my most consistent relationship over COVID. So, I mean, I see my therapist every week and I think probably I've definitely feel like that's true. I mean, I didn't even realize I was burned out until about halfway through COVID because I was like falling asleep all the time after work and I just thought I was tired. And my therapist had to point out that people who 
uh, work in mental health can also get burned out, even though they talk about burnout all the time and should know that themselves. Um, <laughs> and so I think like, you know, I think I definitely do learn some stuff about myself and my own like self-awareness and things the way I process things and the things that work for me and I think moving forward it'll be really helpful for like my relationships and my boundaries and the ways that I like manage all of the things that I do because I'm pretty bad at like you know saying no and having work-life boundaries and that only got worse when work and life were at home and really easy to blend so it's definitely been a lot harder to say no to things and 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 over the pandemic has been a flex of that muscle of like having to say no more often and I think that's a good thing to learn. Hmm. I feel like I have a new appreciation for our resilience. And by that R, I mean our entire society. I think if you told yeah. me a year ago that this wasn't just going to be a couple weeks, that this was still going to be going on on March 11th, 2021, I would have screamed. I would have thrown things. I would have thought it wasn't possible. And yet here we are. And so many people have, have found ways um, to get through this and, and to find happiness and joy during it. Yeah, people are like truly beautiful. I mean, I think and I I would say I'm biased because I definitely have listened to like humanity and stories of humanity for most of my job for a while. But, you know, listening to it over the pandemic and seeing how much people have struggled and how much hardship people have gone through, you know, on top of like, I mean, someone who was interviewed was saying, you know, on top of the pandemic, all of the systemic racism and all of the election and everything, it's been a really hard year and people are really trying and really pulling through and really sticking together and have been doing such a great job and it's been hard but you know people are are doing as good as they can and I think there's a lot of hope and a lot of like beauty and how great people are just like you know and I I feel blessed to be able to spend my job listening to people and listening to the stories of people as like what I do for work every day and I think you know I agree with you like there's a lot of hope and sort of like you know it, it, we're lucky that we have a society like that, that people are great like that. Well, Dr. Jesse Gold, uh, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at Washington University, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And if you're listening to this and you've made it through one year, maybe pat yourself on the back. And that is especially true for those essential workers who have kept this country going. We are so grateful for you. More reporting from the St. Louis on the Air team is available at stlpublicradio.org. And be sure never to miss a conversation by subscribing to our podcast. You can find St. Louis on the Air on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts on the App Store. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hempel, Lara Hamden, Emily Woodbury, and Alex Hoyer. The audio engineer is Aaron Dorr. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.